0: It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia. A quick friendly reminder, even before the pandemic, it wasn't that much fun to go to the food store.
1: Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Alexis. Alexis and Tom are siblings. Alexis is an epidemiologist who has her PhD from the Ohio State University and recently gave birth to a beautiful baby boy, Maxwell. Alexis joined us for our Footloose episode. While we were looking at movies we had always meant to see, Alexis still conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. The first round questions will be worth one point, and in round two, the questions will be worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. KJ, tell us about today's movie. Today, we are concluding our
0: journey through Best Picture nominees by going back to 1938. Minimum wage went from $0.25 cents to $0.44 cents an hour. Orson Welles broadcast his famous War of the Worlds radio broadcast. And nuclear fission was discovered in Germany. During all this, Frank Capra releases You Can't Take It With You. Frank Capra is also known for It Happened One Night, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and It's a Wonderful Life. You Can't Take It With You won the Academy Award for Best Picture, over Alexander's Ragtime Band, Boys Town, Four Daughters, Grand Illusion, Jezebel, Pygmalion, Test Pilot, The Citadel, and Harold Flynn's Robin Hood. Tom will be quizzing us today. Tom, what is You Can't Take It With You all about?
2: All right. This is a very interesting movie because it sees the kind of the intersection of a lot of you know major stars, major writers, major directors. Um, it's based on the 1936 play by Kaufman and Hart. Um, and we'll, we'll encounter them again in this podcast I'm positive. But the play itself and the, the movie that it's based on is about a kind of eccentric family, the Sycamores, who um, live in this home and their daughter, Alice, has become quite taken with a young man, Tony Kirby, played by James Stewart, and Alice is is played by Gene Arthur. And it turns out that Kirby's father, Kirby senior, played by Edward Arnold, is attempting to buy up the Sycamores' home in an effort to create a uh, a, a monopoly in this area, and he needs all of these uh, properties in order to, to create his monopoly. And the, the Kirby's have no interest whatsoever in this financial arrangement. However, we see Tony and Alice, Stuart and Arthur uh, growing closer and closer. And so um, they invite the Kirby's, these, these kind of blue blooded, financial people to come over for a dinner together in order to get them to know one another. And then hilarity ensues as these two very different people from very different worlds interact. Nick, if you had one word to describe, you can't take it with you. What would it be? Harmonica. KJ? Idealistic. Alexis?
3: Lighthearted.
2: And my word would be individualistic. It's time for question one. What hasn't Grandpa Vanderhoof done in 22 years?
1: Locked in.
3: I think I'm locked in.
2: Locked in. All right, KJ, you locked in last. You have to go
0: first. So it was a little unclear. I think he told the story a few times. I don't know if he hadn't taken an elevator or if he hadn't taken an elevator to work in the past 22 years.
2: All right, thank you. Alexis, what do you have?
3: I thought it was just the elevator, but he hasn't taken an elevator.
2: All right, Nick, what do you have?
1: Totally different angle here. I'm pretty sure he said he hadn't gotten upset or berated someone in that period of time. There's a scene when they're in the jail cell and Vanderhoff goes off at Kirby as not being a good person, to put it lightly.
2: Okay, and points will go to no one. (laughs) Um, Really? uh, It was his taxes. He hasn't paid his taxes in 22 years. The elevator work stuff was between 30 and 35 years. And in terms of braiding people in a jail cell, um, or, you know, I I don't remember how many years it has been since Grandpa Vanderhoff has has braided someone in a jail cell. Uh, It it was also a considerable amount of time. Um, But... I think it was over 30 years there as well. So no points for anyone, boo you guys, boo.
1: You're probably right. If the elevator was X amount of years, then that was probably the same for my answer. Cause that was like when he stopped working Mm -hmm. is when he last got upset about stuff.
2: So I I brought this up, I thought I'd start it off because uh, Vanderhoef played by Lionel Barrymore, you know, of the famous Barrymore family, Sort of sets I think the ethical standard for this for this Vanderhoof sycamore family uh, that we see, and I was wondering what you guys thought that that family represented, what kind of ethic and you know way of living you saw captured in this family so you had mentioned in your intro that the rich, rich
0: Kirbys and then the not quite as rich uh, Vanderhoofs, right. You might have even used the
2: word blue blood, for the Kirby's. For the,
0: oh, I thought blue blood was the like blue collar, blue bloods. Blue blue bloods. Yeah, it's.
2: (laughs) Their their blood and their collar are are different. Are invades. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Blue bloods
1: usually have a white collar.
2: (laughs) Yeah, unless they're police officers, in which case it's it's just a descriptor. Yeah, you know, I thought the Vanderhoofs
0: must have been incredibly well off, if none of them had been working for however Mm -hmm. many years 30 years right so they've i'm assuming they're just independently wealthy and that's how they're able to sustain this lifestyle i don't know if that was the intent of the director but that's that was the only he also did taxes right
3: yeah (laughs) (laughs) well or did he he?
0: well he didn't have any income he advised
3: stamp i I felt like like uh uh, assess people's stamp mm-hmm. collections and uh, or something?
2: yeah he was he, he did stamp appraisal
3: yeah so mm-hmm. I don't know like how much you're bringing in and they sold illegal fireworks which it's mm-hmm. <laughs> not nothing
1: it yeah. sounded like he was working pretty hard in the typical rat race <laughs> before then though it sounded like he had one of those high powered jobs made some made bank and then said I'm done and I think they try to parallel that at the end of this film which I'm sure we'll get to
2: yeah. yeah, that, the, the source of their survival, um, it's, it's somewhat ambiguous. Yeah, they do mention stamp appraisal, which I think they added into the movie. It's not in the play that this is based on. just this they're like, we got to explain this somehow. Um, but <laughs> but I, I do think there's this, um, why I use the, the word individualistic as my word, is that there is this kind of um, idea of the idiosyncratic lifestyle as being um, coterminous with, with Americanness or being an American, it's like doing what the hell you wanna do regardless. And so I think that the, um, the financial means of doing that was kind of shoehorned in <laughs> to, to, to justify it. Um, but yeah, I, I think what was more important was this idea of the, the independence of the family, without maybe necessarily the recognition that that type of independence usually requires a little bit of bank. Talking about
1: independence, even in their area, we're at least given more information that they're independently wealthy compared to their peers. And the reason I say this is when Kirby starts buying up all the neighborhood, everyone is being evicted from their properties because they're tenants, whereas the Vanderhoffs actually own their property Mm -hmm. so that is a little bit of a a distinguishing feature of their status in their community and talking about their status in the community i thought it was interesting that he's not just grandpa of the family he's grandpa of the whole area (laughs) that's what's really fascinating about this especially and this is jumping ahead a bit When we're in the court scene, originally I think they imply they thought that was the Kirby's audience because there's so many people there, but it really was the Vanderhoffs. when I listened a little closer Mm -hmm. that that's what they were saying, how rich he truly was because of his relationships.
2: Yeah, yeah, there is is a populist strain in this as well. Right, there is that, um, you know, if if we think of populism, I, I don't like to think of populism as an ideology, it's more of a tactic. But it's it's also a world view, right? It's us against them, right? There's some sort of elite and there's some, some someone who is not elite or a group of people who are not elite. And that is definitely through this movie.
1: Well, you see that too at the end. We don't need the rich person's money. Here's all our money. Mm-hmm. By the way, made me directly think of It's a Wonderful Life uh, mm-hmm. when they're bailing out the savings and loan. Uh, it seemed very similar. <laughs> I <Yeah>. wonder why. <laughs> Yeah. And on that note, too, uh, another tangent. I was watching this film and I'm like, that guy sounds just like Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. And then one quick internet search later, it is Lionel uh, Barrymore. I just, they look, he looks very different a decade later in that role. But this, the cadence is very unique in, his, in the way he speaks.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it is. You, you know who played that role on Broadway in the 1983 revival? It was no Jason Robarts. Jason oh. Robarts played it in, uh, when, they, when they revived the play during, during the period in which I was born. <laughs> so I felt a, a strong connection to it.
0: It's time for question two.
2: What project has Jimmy Stewart's character Tony... Invested in in college and has been interested in since then.
1: Locked
0: in. Locked in, but I I cannot remember. Yeah,
3: I don't know, but I could say something.
2: <laughs> well That's good.
3: <laughs> Make it entertaining. Because it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: your turns, so yeah, <laughs> it'd be helpful if you said something
3: uh, yeah. i know his mom's interested in the occult so maybe he he was doing something with her on the occult
2: all right so we have the occult as the first response what do you have kj
0: the only thing that can come into my head is is windmills in college. He (laughs) invested in some windmill technology company and he's just always was interested in windmills and wanted to get out Uh, there
2: and and build his own
1: windmill. (laughs) Good good
2: Dutchman. (laughs) (laughs) And Nick, what do you have?
1: (laughs) KJ is not far off. It is a green technology. He speaks about how plants harness the light uh, to create energy. And what's fascinating about this, especially in the time period of the movie, this was almost a precursor to solar technology. So he was start- talking more plant-based, but it made me think of where that evolved to later in our society.
3: Freaking chlorophyll. I The whole yes, time he was doing exactly. this, I, yeah, 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 I kept yeah, waiting yeah, for him exactly. to say what it was, and then I couldn't <laughs> yeah. remember it later. Yep. I also yep. didn't realize we were talking... About financial investments, and how the occult makes no sense.
2: <laughs> it's Scientology. It's proto-Scientology, and yes, Nick does get the points. Nick did did uh, record or remember the right answer, and I, I found this that scene really fascinating. Um, just because it is, I think, part of this idea of, of the individual and individualism, the, the concept more broadly, is that this isn't necessarily just a kind of rant against, um, you know, against people with money or kind of entrepreneurial spirit. There is kind of a, a love for the love of something. Right. Be it the, the harmonica that that Kirby and Vanderhoof play at the end or, you know, or what have you or dance like the sister engages in. Who's like a 15 year old Ann Miller, by the way, which is kind of shocking. Um, but I was wondering what you guys thought of this idea of kind of investing in or engaging in something you you love or or just can't live without.
1: Yeah, this is the typical follow your passion versus what's going to make you a ton of money. So that's really the angle. And that tends to draw people, I'm generalizing, but a lot of the people are drawn to the arts, do follow it for a passion, not necessarily for the financial benefit. We, of course, see those in society who are at the top of that making a lot of money, but there's tons of people that are doing it just because they couldn't envision themselves doing anything else.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Artists and entrepreneurs have very similar um, very similar makeup. They're very similar people.
1: It also
0: ties into the Vanderhoofs, right? Because that's, that's what the Vanderhoofs do. They are in their house doing what they love, whether it's writing plays, making fireworks. So in, in a lot of ways, what he's saying is, mm-hmm. I want to do what the Vanderhoofs are doing. So it, it also then makes him a good match for Alice and Mm-hmm. We like him and yeah
2: yeah exactly it situates kind of him things. as being possibly one of them right he could maybe be one of them
3: i just like how bad the vanderhoofs are at everything they do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i mean it's <laughs> they're just like a really good example for following your passion regardless of money because none of them are making money at it mm-hmm. you know, like no one is paying her sister to dance or the brother-in-law to play xylophone this is just a pure passion project Mm -hmm. no one's paying them yet
2: ever nick (laughs) ever i try
1: to be the eternal optimist
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah there there is this kind of yeah this idea of loving something or or whatever that that's going on here um you know I, i liked how that was kind of divorced from banking, which is, which is, you know, an interesting thing, but it wasn't this kind of, that this idea of um, following your passion wasn't, uh, it wasn't collectivist in the way it was framed, right? I mean, this idea of being away from um, the, the money powers or financial powers was not framed in this kind of collectivist view. It was framed as an individualistic thing. And we can think of those like banking scenes where there's a bunch of people who are, um, Kirby's first name, the, the banker's first name is AP, It's the initials of his first, uh, first two names. And it's a lot of it's these, these kind of like faceless men running up to him and going, Hey, AP, AP, what about this? Hey, AP, AP, come on and down, come on over here. You know? Um, uh, that type of thing. We see echoes of this later in, um, in Citizen Kane, when we're learning about Kane in those initial opening scenes and um, they go into like the vault where Kane's diary is. And it's this giant imposing space um, that, you know, that seems kind of non-human. This movie isn't quite doing that, that expressionistic thing, but I think it is doing the, the dehumanizing thing when you're in the banking space.
1: Along those lines, the reason I chose the word harmonica mm-hmm. was because that is symbolic of this change throughout the whole film. Anytime uh, AP Kirby is going through it, he always has that harmonica. He's throwing it across the table, it gets thrown right back at him. So it really is a pivotal device for him to see the light of what's really important. So that, that's why I, you know, I didn't choose that word just to be cute or funny, but it really mm-hmm. was impactful to the story. So this movie came
0: out in 38, right? So we're not quite a decade away from the beginning of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. So I was also wondering, are some of these idealistic things, some of these kind of sillier things, oh, we're just gonna do this. I, I wonder if it's a reaction, you know, a relief, a, well, we're done with the depression now. And at that time, you know, people were trying to do anything to make a buck. And maybe there were households where people were like, oh, I'm gonna start making firework. I'm gonna do whatever it takes. So there was a, a layer of humor there that was lost on us because this this wasn't a big sigh of relief like oh yeah, I remember when Uncle Johnny thought he could you know save the family by getting a, a xylophone or you know whatever whatever it was. So I also wonder if part of the humor and these individual things that everybody was doing, even the, uh, the chlorophyll or, or whatever he thought right mm-hmm. maybe there was people like oh, I, I have 15 dollars and I can just go invest it in this thing and then save the the times so i also wonder if there was either humor there or just um you know a cultural thing that we're not privy
4: to
2: well i i would say i movies in the 30s the response to the depression typically with american movies was to show the good life that's Typically, what you did because it's the one entertainment people can afford to do, even poor people still went to the movies. So, then I'm saying this is post depression, right? This would be after that. Mm, this is the response no. to this is still, I mean, if it's 38, it's you're in the I mean, so. employment is double digit in 38. Oh, wow, you have, okay. a, you have kind of a double you. The depression is thought of as one thing, it's really kind of two because you have a um, you have the stock market crash, which really isn't depression, you, you then have appeared in the early 30s, and then I, I think in 36 to 40, 41, there's kind of a second wave of it. Um, don't don't quote me on the actual dates. I can but-
1: actually mm. share a little bit on this, uh, right. being a man of business. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends what you look up, but the actual depression which has to do with a certain amount of cycles of down, you know, anyway, I don't want to get into the details there, but that's like 29 through 33. But then there was a follow-up recession that did kind of go through 37, 38, you know, so there still mm-hmm. was, um, issues, you know, people were going through during that period. Honestly, that following decade was still a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. So even through
2: yeah, the war. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, employment was double digits in 38, I'm positive it was. I don't think unemployment went to below double digits until 45, but um, but anyway, so like with 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 movies, the response almost is always um, let's show ritz, right? Let's escape. Uh, and it, it's a good point to bring up. It's, I, I think the humor here is in the fact that these eccentric people don't have the same worries. Right, and I think that when the Kirby's come in, you have uh, this this kind of high comedy. High comedy is comedy about upper class people. Um, you could think of Sex in the City as a modern high comedy in the sense that you no, know, it's about these upper class women, um, but th- these high comedy elements coming into um, kind of farcical situations, and that's where a lot of the pleasure comes out of it. And it's it's also against the it's against the idea of these kind of blue bloods, um, these kind of blue bloods having dominance, right? Because it's these blue bloods who are credited with causing the depression. And we could argue whether or not that's true, I don't, I don't really think it is, but um, you, know, you, you then have this kind of eccentric group of people who can be individualistic and do what they want to do, are not desperate, right? That's the fantasy there. They're not desperate and they're not desperate even though they have the chance of marrying into incredible wealth right that to me i think is the fantasy okay after round one we have nick in the lead with a single point and no one else has any points good job nick we'll see everyone in round two
4: mr gray here with another edition of morally gray jumbo from pennsylvania writes in about a sandwich and its availability for dinner jumbo had a contractor working on the house jumbo bought sandwiches for himself his wife and the contractor jumbo ate his whole sandwich but his wife and said contractor only ate half of their sandwich into the fridge went the half sandwiches which were left by the contractor during his departure. That night, Jumbo's wife decided to have her sandwich for dinner. Here's the morally gray bit. Jumbo decided to have the contractor's sandwich for dinner. Jumbo's wife protested, and together, they decided to write me, Mr. Gray. The story goes on the following day, after the sandwich was indeed left uneaten by Jumbo. Jumbo mentions to the contractor that his sandwich is still in the fridge and available for lunch or other future meals at the end of the day far after the contractor has left the sandwich is still in the refrigerator and the row between jumbo and his wife started anew audience i turn to you what is the acceptable time a sandwich can be in the fridge under which circumstances a potential returning sandwich owner will be back keeping in mind that sandwiches do indeed have an expiration date. Would you have eaten that sandwich? This has been Mr. Gray with a morally gray question. Please enjoy your regularly scheduled programming. And
1: we're back. We're at the pivotal point of our episode where we ask the guests a key question. Alexis, if you could watch this movie
3: with anyone,
1: dead or alive, who would it be?
3: Um, my neighborhood is rapidly developing and one of my neighbors is really into spite houses um, and i would have liked to watch this with her what's a spite house it's um when people won't sell their property for to developers so you'll see like this tiny little house in the middle of like this huge condo building um for Uh. in philly we have two big comcast buildings and there's like a tiny little chapel in the middle of them which is Mm. um my favorite spite house uh but there's a new one kind of uh, around the corner from me where um a little like corner store wouldn't sell so they're developing this huge like 170 unit condo project with just this like tiny old Corner store in the middle of it. Um, it. It looks wild, but he just wouldn't sell it.
1: I got to go on the Philly Spite House tour. That that I mean, I think there's something here. Yeah, I think she's putting it
3: together. Um, she's she really points out a lot of them to me. It's, it's fun.
1: <laughs> we kind of had a, that in my family. There was the house my aunt Jeannie lives in. It used to be a duplex in Brooklyn. And there's a big apartment building. They cut half the duplex, but they didn't sell their half of the duplex. So I'm, so you have this big apartment building next to her half of a duplex. So, so I guess that counts as a, a spite building or a spite house. Yeah.
2: Spite house. <laughs> Wait, half place. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well they were like side by side attached, you know, attached houses, you know.
2: I guess they weren't that spiteful. <laughs> only a little bit. <laughs> well they, they own only the owned that thing? side. Oh. Another another
1: family, oh, another okay. family owned the we other have gotta one. take this deal, not the whole deal. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, they no. were two
1: houses d- attached. <laughs> They own one. Somebody else owns the other. <laughs> I, got
2: you. I was just thinking, like a half spider
1: house. <laughs> they just cut the. They just cut off the first top half. You know? The disgruntled house.
2: That's. What.
0: I'm picturing two side by side, and then the guy in up does his umbrella, or the guy in up does his balloons, and the other half just is being dragged.
1: With <laughs> Where are we going? I think I've helped with the visual here, right?
0: It's just chopped <laughs> yes, in yes. half. <laughs> It's time for question three.
2: In the last act of the movie, taking place in a courtroom, the judge loses control over his court. What causes him to lose control? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right. Everybody seems so confident, but we'll have to go with KJ first.
0: There, there, he was using that gavel quite a bit. To be honest, um, but when it stopped working, I think was when the press came in. I think when the press finally broke through. I think that was when things
2: went haywire. The press, okay. The press, Alexis. What do you have?
3: I thought it was when Kirby was gonna pay. Um, sorry, uh, was going to pay the fine for the um, Ben Hur streets. This other name.
2: Mm-hmm. Vanderehoofs. Vanderehoofs. The Vanderhoofs, or the um, sicker more.
3: I thought when Kirby was going to pay the fine for them, and then the uh, neighbors started chipping in and saying they would raise the the fine money.
2: All right, Nick, what do you have?
3: It was when
1: the reporters barged in because they just want to take one flash, you know, and then and then it went crazy, and then the wife fainted and a whole scene.
2: Okay, so I'm on the the edge here. I'm going to give points to Alexis, even though I think that's not technically correct. What?
3: That's when it goes
1: (laughs) crazy. (laughs) They can't contain it. People faint. They got to drag people out.
2: What really does it is when Alice admits in public that the Kirbys were there not to buy the property, but to see her family, to see if they would be a good match for her son. If she would be a good match for their son. That's when she yells it out, and then that's when everybody starts screaming and yelling. Um, however, I can't argue with that. yeah. However, mm-hmm. there that was is a the moment. Catalyst. Yeah, that, and that's when the judge is banging in and eventually just kind of gives up. He lets the hammer go. However, there is a moment when, um, when they gather the money together. However, I'd say the judge still controls the court. He hasn't lost control yet until that scene. Um. He actually
1: contributes movie. to the the fund, which again yeah. was like it's a wonderful life when they're yeah. collecting money. Yeah. Even the guy who was the banker put mm-hmm. in money. So sorry, so, just jumped out at me. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean it's a Capra. It's <laughs> a theme
2: through Capra's movie. So I'm gonna give Alexis one point just because you, you got close, but it's not really correct. But you know whatever, it'll make it more interesting. More um, correct <laughs> than us. I yeah, got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. I think Nick, what you're bringing up is is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this scene up, which is this uh, this kind of Capra staple, which is the you know the the common people working together, right, to to do something, or the common again this kind of populist attitude, right, the common people against the the wealthy people. Um, In this scene, Kirby, the banker, wants to pay the fine. Um, the, the family we like, the Sycamore family, is being fined for having illegal fireworks. It's $100. Uh, Kirby decides he's going to volunteer to pay it. However, the courtroom, which is just filled with seemingly hundreds of people, this is the largest courtroom in the world, apparently. Um, you know, It looks like Giant Stadium, but you know, it's just filled with people. And they all say, oh, no, you don't dare pay the fine. And they gather money and give it to the judge. And then when Alice tells off the Kirby's, uh, she tells them, you know, um, you just came here to see if I was good enough for your son. Well, he's not good enough for me. And then everybody starts you know, applauding and celebrating. Um,
1: I was wondering the press we- barges in. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and the press also barges in. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> you, did, you did really well. Hey, this is well, for me Nick. and KJ, KJ and I. <laughs> um, but... Uh, Thank you. I I was wondering what you guys thought of this scene, this kind of real like kind of populist energy that comes in. And I was wondering what you thought of that in either contrast with or agreement with the kind of like uh, sycamore individualistic thing that's going on in earlier scenes. So the first thing I did
0: when I saw this is I looked up how much $100 would be today. Just to get a, to get of a scale. course, yeah. <laughs> what, did get?
1: what did we get to?
0: It's a, it's a little less than two thousand bucks.
1: Oh, that's a, that's for. So me. this
0: dude that's not paying income taxes and is assessing stamps and is living in one of the nicest houses I've ever seen. I think, right? With all these people, they're eating great. They have two servants. I don't even know the right. Kind word. of, yeah, yeah. Doesn't have two K to. Throw it the judge right now, and then the people that are renting that later on in the movie he's going to completely upheave their lives mm-hmm. are now chipping in for him. I thought it was a very nice moment, but it, it just didn't feel appropriate. I I don't know. It mm-hmm. it felt like the other Frank Capra movies, which is you know fine, but mm-hmm. didn't do it for me.
2: Yeah, I, I I'll, I'll also agree. I am not a big It's a Wonderful Life fan. Um, I I find this movie more to my liking than It's a Wonderful Life, but I I find the the sentimentality in It's a Wonderful Life uh, a little cloying.
1: I like It's a Wonderful Life, but I had no experience with any of his other works. And that was so much later that I didn't realize he was just using the same type of formula (laughs) in multiple scenes. Heck, he's using the same actors, (laughs) okay? We're just going to retell the story with a slightly different premise, but same underlying themes, so
3: what's the movie that's a, a world war ii movie that has a similar title to it's a wonderful life
2: i don't know world war ii movie um
3: Not a good when tangent. was it made roughly, um we like, watched whatever. it in it's it's in italian
2: <laughs> okay oh, deep here. roberto uh, bellini's movie yes oh um it's a beautiful life. I think yeah. life is beautiful. Life is beautiful. Mm-hmm. That, I that, mix that's it. Yeah. that
3: up with a wonderful life a lot, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is a very, very different movie. Um, mm-hmm. But sorry, that has nothing to do with the courtroom. <laughs> but for a second, um, when you are talking about a wonderful life, it's uh, it has taken me to now to, stop thinking about life is beautiful and um the courtroom scene though like to what i think he was saying where you know it kind of felt super uh un unbalanced that everyone else was paying for this and then i didn't really it didn't strike me as off until he decided to sell and then it just kind of felt like oh <laughs> i think all these You know what you're doing, you know all these people are getting kicked out now and it's not just like well it's me and it's them it's just was directly all of these people that paid your fine for you, that are now going to get evicted because you, you know want to go live near Alice. That was a little odd, where
1: all his fundamentals went out the window I was like oh she moved to XYZ place. Yeah, of course we're all going to move there she doesn't want to come back to this house so and it, no like
3: it was like 20 minutes away like, get in the car and go see her <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: yeah. well like, you can't afford a car on a stamp appraiser salary
3: right <laughs> <Hey. laughs> yeah or rent it out something man <laughs> i mean and who's you know it's also the look- quickest home sale i've ever seen mm-hmm. just got on the phone and was like well we can only get 25 now all right well pack up <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah that was, yeah that was pretty cool i mean the, the idea i guess is that he doesn't really care about how much he can get for the house he just wants to be with his daughter but yeah there is this um yeah that's a good point there is a sort of like So now everybody has to leave because you have to, you wanna be a little closer to Alice, uh, you know, who just, you know, not to spoil the ending or anything for our listening audience, uh, but, you know, eventually they get the house back, right? And I guess nobody has to leave. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I I think the idea of the scene though, the the sort of kind of the, the populism of the scene, uh, is something that kind of goes through Capra. And what's interesting about it is it is it doesn't feel to me particularly collectivist. Um, it just feels uh, kind of... It, it feels like the attitude of people who don't want to be reliant, right? That seems to be the thing, right? It's it's a, we're not going to rely on on this guy and we're not going to let people we like be reliant. You know, the 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 thing that is good about us is that we don't rely on anyone else. You know, that, that seems to be the attitude.
0: Yeah, it was it was very much the opposite of the Englishman who went up a hill and came down a mountain where um, I forget the bartender's name now. Oh boy, that was uh, the like goat a week ago. The goat. Where the mm-hmm. goat's like, you don't want to be the goat. only one not contributing. Mm-hmm. Right? That that's that's not what this felt like at all. It did not feel like anybody was being guilted or pressured into this. It was mm-hmm. Like you're saying, Tom, no, this is something I want to do as an individual. Yeah. We're not doing this necessarily as a community, but as individuals.
3: Oh, but at the same point, they're all relying on him. Yeah. Like the entire community yeah. is just <laughs> relying on him to not sell his house. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's it's I, that's true. It's like they're all relying on him, but there is this kind of authority that has come in, an external authority that's come in and, and kind of upended them. Um, you know, with, without that, you know, without that kind of bullying power, it, you know, it doesn't matter. But it, I mean, it is a good point. Yeah, that we uh, <laughs> that they are still they are kind of forced to rely on him because of circumstance. I think not because of anything the Vanderhops or Sycamores have done. It's time for question four. All right, moving into our last question. There is a tie right now between Nick and Alexis at one point. This last question is worth two points, so it really could be anyone's game. Uh-oh. oh Now, the original question I had planned had actually been covered in this episode, so we are going to be moving into the bonus question. Harmonica. <laughs> okay. So Nick locks in harmonica.
1: (laughs) I was saying that was probably the original question.
2: (laughs) No, it wasn't. The the actual question was, um, uh, what does grandpa still get paid doing? Oh. Uh, Yeah, but anyway, um, here we go. What set off the fireworks? And I'll be more specific in the scene when the police come to arrest them, what set off the fireworks? Locked in.
3: Locked in. Locked
2: in. I'm sorry, Nick, you locked in last. You have to go first.
1: They were rushing everyone out of the house and one of them was already lit. And they had they forced them to go away. So that's what
2: set them all off. Okay. And Alexis, I think you locked in second.
3: Yeah, I thought Poppins, I wasn't sure if it was a firework or or something else, but I thought Poppins said a fuse is lit and they wouldn't let him go back down to put it out.
0: KJ, what do you have? Oh, well, now I'm nervous because my answer's a little different. I thought it was Alice's dad had a pipe down there and he wanted to get his pipe back, but the police wouldn't let him get his pipe. So the pipe eventually set off the fireworks. Alice's dad's pipe.
2: That's exactly correct. Alice's dad's pipe. Alice's dad, Paul, set off the fireworks. He was begging the police to let him back down there to get his pipe and... Ba boom, it did not work. And so that gives KJ two points.
1: A late episode steal here. Yeah,
2: there we go. So KJ comes out with two points. And yeah, that's it. Very good. Congratulations, KJ. You can take that with you. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I would say drop your mic, but it's anchored to your desk.
1: I was going to give you extra kudos, but now <laughs> I, I, I rescind I, any thoughts yeah, I had of it. My arrogance <laughs> ruined whatever. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's time for
2: Movie Rand. What I found kind of fascinating about this movie, even though I think we all have maybe a little suspicion about its, um, its, its quality. I, I like this movie. and I know, Nick, you liked it a lot.
1: Yeah, I, I did enjoy this film. I, I thought it was I, witty and, and fun.
2: Yeah, and it's it's a lot of that's like Kaufman and Hart. They're just great playwrights. I, I'd recommend, um, you know, getting a copy of their plays. Or we're gonna re- we're going to see Kaufman's uh, Dinner at Eight. It's a collaboration he did with Edna Ferber, okay. which you're going to be watching next season. So, you know, you, you'll run into him again. But the one of the reasons I picked this is I wanted to kind of answer the question: What is what is Capra's vision of America in this? Um, and I thought that would be an interesting question to bring in an Oscar episode because the Oscars are such are this American way or an American attempt of making movies legitimate. Movies were never considered legitimate in, in, in the silent era and even in the early sound era, the way they were, legitimate art, the way they were in Europe. Like you see movies like by, by Fritz Lang and uh, Victor uh, Schostrom. Um, those were like considered art, and these people were working kind of in a theater tradition. Um, the, the kind of California movie scene was not considered that. And the Oscars were an attempt to make it make it that, right? Make movies art. Um, and I think that attempt to make an American art via the Oscars and Capra's vision of what America is, uh, they, they intersect in an interesting way. And I was wondering what people thought his vision of America is.
0: So I haven't read up on on, uh, Capra at all, so this might be very wrong, but he seems, first of all, very confused as if to what America is. And then if if I didn't know any better, I would have thought this wasn't an American director making a movie because it feels like either an idealistic America or what somebody from outside of America thinks America is, oh, there's bankers and there's these like rich families that are richer than most people, but they're the poor people, but I guess they're the rich people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and oh, American idealism, that's like making fireworks and assessing stamps, right? Like that also kind of felt off. So everything felt a little off from what I imagine most people think of, um, you know, America, um, I think he's confused at best.
3: I felt like the idealism to me, at least was that, you know, you don't need to, your world doesn't need to revolve around money and being in the rat race and you can just kind of stay home and do what you love. And I think there's just a huge disconnect with like, how are you paying, you know, your servants I'm assuming are what Donald and Reba were. And, um, you know, like, how are you making this seemingly comfortable life for all of these people that are, you're supporting without having some sort of income? Um, but yeah, I mean, it seemed very much that, the, you know, the bankers and this love of money and your life revolving around money is the, the bad part and the, you know, laissez-faire lifestyle is what is good. I will tell you what it's
1: not, and that is an advertisement for capitalism. <laughs> That's not what he's really focused on here.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I feel kind of two ways about it because Capra was, if you know Capra, you know his, his story, um, Capra is a Sicilian immigrant. Um, he had a little, you know, his parents were, couldn't read. They, they came over very early on when he was uh, like seven or eight, I think a child. And uh, he just kind of made it, you know, he he made it rich, right? He was, you know, he made movies going back to 1926, I think was his first film. Um, He rose to the top of his profession. He started his own production company. He was the president of the Motion Picture Academy when he won all his awards. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Uh, I, I actually think he was president in 34, in 35. He won his first Oscar in 34. So. You know, a little leeway. However, <laughs> <laughs> his next two, he was president for. Um, so he wink, he is, wink,
1: nod, nod. <laughs> yeah,
2: he is kind of, and he was for his whole life this kind of, you know, um, uh, a supporter of that kind of de Torquillian idea of America. All of his movies are like that, right? If you think of Mister Deeds goes to town or Mister Smith goes to Washington, um, there is this kind of idea of like the 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 individual can do great things and that we don't we don't need none of these institutions right that type of thing we don't need to worry about power or not worry about power um we can do what we want to do in spite of institutions maybe i should say that i mean that's the whole thing with mr smith goes to washington right is that um the machine doesn't eat him right he he emerges victorious in the end um and That's kind of the the vision I see here also is that it's, I don't know if it's necessarily anti-capitalism.
1: Well, it's not glorifying it. What I'm saying is not him mm -hmm. as a person and in his actual life, but in the confines of the lens of just this film, Mm -hmm. he's not glorifying capitalism.
2: Yeah, he's not glorifying it, but it's also like the old man is also, do you remember what the Kirby's are trying to build?
1: Uh,
0: weapons. Ammunition. Yeah, it's a
2: munitions factory factory. Right. I know. Yeah. A factory. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's munitions. It's for the government and they're trying to get a, a the, you know, the first thing he does when he comes back to New York, he's coming back from from Washington in order to get, you know, kind of permission to, to build this monopoly, um, you know, or at least he or at least he's making sure he's not going to get antitrust thrown in his face. One of those two. Um and, Not a and, legal monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's this idea of like coercive authority that he's worried about more than more than you know, kind of capitalism, quote unquote. Um, you know, which I could be part of capitalism certainly and is part of it. But I, you know, I, I think he's more worried instead about like um about making money or wealth, I think he's more worried about the about losing the authority over yourself in order to gain those things, right? I think that's, that's the problem. Um, and I think that's maybe why we don't see a poor family in the Sycamore Vanderhuff household. I think we see a, you know, okay family, right? Like they, they shirk all institutional norms and all authorities, you know, including the tax man, right? Um, he, he never pays his taxes. In the play, they actually tell you why he doesn't pay his taxes. He doesn't he's believe the- in it. Well n- no, I mean why he doesn't ever have a punishment. Like the the issue just goes away. <laughs> he kicks it text. Uh in the play they have um there there was a milkman who used to live with them, but nobody knew his name. So when he died, they just gave him the grandfather's name. Uh and so then the IRS writes back and goes, "Oh, we're sorry. We re- we didn't realize you were dead. Here's a refund." <laughs> <laughs> so that's how the the issue gets it just gets like he gets at the very end of the play he gets a letter and he's like oh i don't owe the irs money anymore you know and and, you know it kind of goes away and that's a little bit of the escapism too which is in the play and certainly certainly in this um you know in this movie but i think the the escapism is also kind of a an imagining of an america in which you can also escape from authority right you could just tell the irs man well, we gave Cuba back, so I'm not giving you any money. This That's stupid. And then it just works. <laughs> You're just fine. Well, he did just get the house back too, you know? Yeah, yeah, you, you know.
0: Yeah, by becoming friends with Kirby, right? That's ultimately Kirby had one friend now. Because <laughs> yeah. they can play <laughs> harmonicas together. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Another thing I want to talk about too is as these actors. A lot of them. I, I'll admit, I am not the biggest Lionel Barrymore fan. Um, when we watch Dinner at Eight, we're going to see his brother John, who's who's fantastic. Uh, the Profile was his nickname because um, he was he had such a great profile. But um, I think I, I read know, he had
1: like four different wives too, or something like that.
2: Yeah, he was he's <laughs> he's, he's Drew's grandfather, and yeah. there's there, there's a certain um, behavioral resemblance, let's say. Um, but
3: they all have a lot of spouses (laughs) yeah
2: yeah i I think it's just when like when you're in hollywood that long that's just what happens i don't mean to stereotype but just you know it seems to not be a great place for for the institution of marriage but but anyway um talking about these performers especially uh james stewart and gene arthur um and how kind of you know Wonderful they are. I, I, I kind of adore both of these people. And I was wondering what people thought of, of their performances and even what you might think of their style of performance as being.
0: So I, I didn't know Jimmy Stewart was in this before I hit play, or even after I hit play. Um and I, I listened to another podcast called No One Can Know About This, where they played through every Final Fantasy. I highly recommend it. I really enjoy it. It's it's no cat, like no one can know about this. Um but anyway, they played through the the Final Fantasy video games and when they read the the text of the different characters they assign voices it kind of just happens and one of them that they kind of settled on was a jimmy stewart impersonation and i've heard that a lot more than i've heard or seen jimmy stewart so when this guy came on the screen and he starts talking i'm like what is this a b-rated jimmy stewart who is this guy It, it was it was the Jimmy Stewart on screen was not as good as a Jimmy Stewart as in this, in the podcast. I, you know, as I say, I recommend the, the podcast. So I was a little confused for a while. So I was like, oh, wait, no, no, that is Jimmy Stewart. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: it's, when, it's when the copy becomes more real than the reality.
0: Right. And mm-hmm. I think because of that, I was distracted the whole time. I was just like, oh, I love this guy's voice. Like it's
2: <laughs> That's like a lot of people
0: do
1: like impressions of like Christopher Walken. <laughs> you know, like exactly. everyone's got their take exactly. on it.
2: Yeah, that's Jimmy Stewart back then. He, he's always lovely, Jimmy Stewart, and he would win his, since we're in an Oscar show, he'd win his Oscar in 1940 for uh, The Philadelphia Story, which is also a movie we're going to do. Um, also starring uh, four-time Oscar winner, uh, uh, Catherine Hepburn. Um, but Jean Arthur, I think she was nominated for one. I don't think she ever for one, but she helped invent, really invent, like the screwball acting style that kind of really energetic, uh, 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 somewhat silly, I don't mean silly in a bad way, but a, a kind of uh, vivacious style that became, that, that dominated really the 1930s, that became like the romantic comedy standard. Um, and you know, so she's part of one of this uh, cavalcade of like great female actors then. What's interesting about her though, is she sort of faded from the public light and she really became less interested in performance. Uh, she tried to go back on stage, but had had stage fright, and she ended up going into teaching for a little while. And she was teaching at Vassar, and while she was in Vassar, she kind of recognized somebody in one of her early acting classes, who was this really talented actress. This is in you know I think the early nineteen seventies or maybe even um, late nineteen sixties. And, you know, so she started encouraging this person and pushed her forward and that was Meryl Streep. And, you know, so there's that, you know, Meryl Streep has become, you know, the kind of Oscar, you know, the face of Oscar in probably our own lives, right? We've seen her win her, what, three Oscars now. And there's a, you know, even a connection of that to to this film from Mr. Oscar in the 30s to, to Mrs. Oscar nowadays.
0: Another actor I just want to bring up, I don't know his name, but the, the Russian guy that was teaching the dance. Yeah. <laughs> he looked a lot to me like Hugh Jackman. And I think Hugh Jackman yeah. would have loved that role. I think he would have enjoyed doing that thoroughly. But the whole time I was just wondering, oh man, is this like a really Hugh Jackman?
3: <laughs> he was one of my favorites. Like one of my favorite characters in this movie. I just I like the idea that I think his job was to train her in ballet.
1: Mm-hmm. And I just yeah but you know, his job was also to get a free dinner <laughs> That's right. his job. yeah,
3: yeah <laughs> I just liked um, it seemed like his whole job was to teach lessons like kind of various things and then just tell people they don't get what they were doing and I I really like that as a career path mm-hmm.
2: yeah this is uh R who is actually Russian um, and was an Oscar nominee he was nominated for an Oscar I think in 1940. Let me see. Uh oh, ne- um 1936. So he was he was the Oscar nominee of those actors going into this movie. Wow. And for my man Godfrey.
1: I was actually trying to figure out if he was legit Russian or mm-hmm. not Russian and acting like a Russian. Yeah. That's even bo- better than he was. <laughs> yeah,
2: he's born in St. Petersburg in 1905. So um yeah, that's it. And he came over. He came over in after the Russian Revolution, right? They kind of fled. There's in the play, there's a subplot where he is friends with a bunch of royalty from Russia who are all working as waiters <laughs> in New York because they all ran from the, the Russian Revolution. And so there's one scene where they invite the Countess Olga over and she kind of cooks for everybody, but that, that was cut out. Um, it was replaced with the Poppins scene, which is, not in the original play and i'm sorry it's a little less interesting mr poppins is very cute but he he's not really as funny as a uh as a kind of aged russian woman in in silks trying to cook
3: how long was the play
2: plays very quick the play is shorter than the i think the the play seems i mean i've only read it but the play feels shorter than the movie.
1: I read really fast too. Thomas It's to based on how fast you read. No, no, no. I, I, I wasn't. I timing hit play it. on the
2: movie. <laughs> I
1: started
0: page one. I got to do it. There. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing the Jimmy Stewart impression of my head and everything. I mean, it's still. <laughs> no, I just
2: I'm just on page length. I, I you know, I've I've read enough of these things. I I, I think it's shorter in terms of runtime. Um, yeah, it's it's a little bit different. It's a little funnier. Um, it's a little more ribald like there's a few sex strokes in there that you know don't make it in the Haze Code error but uh, yeah I I would recommend it Um, and Kaufman and Hart this was one of three plays they wrote together they also wrote um, The Man Who Came to Dinner which has made it into a very successful film and they wrote another play called Once in a Lifetime about early Hollywood which is really funny I think it's actually their best play even though it's not I don't think it's ever been filmed.
0: So I have a little bit of trivia here for talking pictures trivia. We don't always trivia, but. Do trivia? (laughs) Yeah, trivia. So I read the IMDb. And one of the things it said on IMDb, which I think anybody could submit to, so, but. um, It said, you can't take it with you, is the shortest movie, that one best picture, that begins with a Y. Okay, so a lot of qualifiers there, but, (laughs) right? The shortest movie, one Best Picture, starts with a Y. So I I looked through the list of pictures that won Best Movie and tried to find the ones that started with the Y. I could only find one. Yankee Doodle Dandy, 1942. (laughs) I've not seen it, but I looked up the runtime. I'll do some checking on this. IMDb lists, you can't take it with you, and Yankee Doodle Dandy at two hours and six minutes. So if it is shorter, it's probably not by much. But there's your trivia for the for the
2: evening. I'm going to just
1: take their word for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's getting right. very specific.
2: <laughs> yeah, I picked this one just because it, it's so it, it's so Oscar-y, mm. right? It's it's That's just, true. you know... Um, I, I wanted to do something that was kind of traditionally Oscar-y. And I think it, it's also, in its themes, it makes sense as an Oscar winner, right? Like, I think it, it, in what it's celebrating and what oscar is trying to do um it, it they kind of connect and it's also you know like capra is the most awarded oscar winner up to that point he's like the first mr oscar um yeah jimmy stewart is, is kind of uh, he only won one but you know he's a he's a bulwark of of the classical era um and it's also like kaufman is such a great playwright and he was involved in, in so much um so much other kind of great films that kind of came out of his plays, and you also have like, like the studio system declaring itself, like with the Oscars, they're like, "We matter," you know, and then you know we're, we're sticking the, you know, like like Columbia is is, um, it's interesting because it's so like uh, it's so entrepreneurial the studios, and it's so like we we don't belong and we're going to do our own thing, like it's just like a bunch of people from like. Belarus and Russia and like Eastern Europe, who just like go buy up penny arcades and you know do whatever they like, like, um, uh, what's his name? I think Gary Cohen is like, uh, or the, the Cohns, I think they were like the one non Jewish immigrant group to, to create a studio. But, um, if you think of like MGM, like Mayer, Mayer started out life as a scrap metal worker. Like he would go around the streets, I think of Montreal, and just like gather metal and sell it. <laughs> like that's how this guy, you know, um, started his his life. And he uh, pawned his wife's wedding ring in order to be able to um, to buy up uh, uh, Birth of a Nation, you know, because he thought that was going to be a big hit, and he and he was right. Um, so it's just really kind of interesting the. that's sort of like, we're just, screw it, we're just gonna do our own thing attitude. This idea of like Oscar as being like, yeah, we're a bunch of kind of like, like people who other people in America thought of as kind of like dirty immigrants. It's like, yeah, we're a bunch of dirty immigrants, but now we're gonna be artists, you know? (laughs) Like we're gonna gonna make up an award ceremony that declares us as artists. Um, And then you have like it being directed by the guy who's also the director of, of the Oscars, um, who's also this immigrant who also shares this kind of kind of vision or, you, you know, depending on where you're standing, delusion of, of America. Um, it's, it's all just kind of worked together, I think, for the theme of the, the episode.
1: I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week, KJ, congratulations.
2: Yay. Hey,
1: thanks, guys. You did
2: it. Wow. How many wins is this? Is this three?
1: <laughs> He's yes. like, actually, he had another one recently though, I think. I of course, well, it's coming Two up. in a row.
2: <laughs> is it two in a row? <laughs>
0: well, there was
1: two in a row and then this one, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, is we've that, said his yeah. name a lot. I'm the oh, one, one who's really hasn't done anything yeah. lately, but it's okay. I still have fun. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's good.
1: <laughs> On another note. Alexis, it was great having you on the show again today. We really had a lot of fun.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a good time.
1: Check out our website, talkingpicturestrivia.com for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those of others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. What do you think Frank Copper's vision of America is and why? Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at Talking Studios. Have additional thoughts? Email us at TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201-467-8679 for a chance to be featured on one of our future from the listeners episodes.
2: You can find me on Twitter at slayman 15 and also please tune in for uh, Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side where we go into more detail in the film.
0: And you can find me on Twitter at KJ10001000.
1: I can also be found on Twitter at The Nicknamed. Join us next time when we discuss Nick's, which is my recommendation from 1971, THX 1138 with Patrick Kotner from the George Lucas Talk Show. Should be a fun one. Talk to you then. Ding, 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 ding. This is one of those movies I'm finding more often now I have to turn on subtitles. Because they talk so darn fast mm-hmm. that sometimes I'm missing what they're saying, and you sound really it old. helps tremendously. <laughs> uh, Would you say you sound really old? Exactly. <laughs> but but think about this film. <laughs> These
0: days they just talk so fast. This one's they talk so fast.